0: Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you? Hey, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I'm glad to be here with you this morning. I'm really excited that I get the opportunity to teach. To be honest, these days, I'm excited to get to do anything. (laughs) My family and I have been pretty strict about lockdown during COVID. We have some health uh, issues in our home. And so um, being here and seeing all of your faces gathered in this one place is just... um, Well, it's kind of freaking me out a little bit. I got to be honest. I mean, you look great, but I'm a little little out of my depth here. Now, the fortunate thing is I love my family. My wife, Rachel, and I are still best friends. We've been married for over 20 years. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Our two boys, Asher and Beck, are great kids, um, but six months is a long time. It's a long time. I feel like I feel like our parenting has been put into some sort of like time travel experiment. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Interstellar, but there's this moment where they have to fly too close to a black hole, and because of that, 10 minutes turns into like 51 years because of a time dilation. Is anybody feeling that? Is it just me? Just me? Just me. Thanks, Tim. (laughs) It ends up feeling like you're doing the same thing over and over again. I'm, and I'm saying the same things over and over again. And when you're stuck in a small house with two young boys for six months, one of the things that I find myself repeating over and over again goes something like this. What in the world is going on in here? This morning, as we pick up the next uh, section in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we're going to see some religious leaders that are asking a similar question. What in the world is going on? Uh, We're going to be leaving the introduction to the Gospel of John and landing right into the middle of the story for the first time. It's already in progress. But before we get there, I think it might be helpful helpful for us to take a a little bit of a step back uh, and get some of the context and background of the Gospel of John as we head into this long journey through this book. Uh, There's some debate about when the Gospel of John was actually written down. But even the debated timeline is a fairly tight 30-year window or so from about 65 AD to somewhere in the 90s AD. There's really two factors that that fit into that discussion. The first one is a pretty obvious one. Uh, John has to be alive to write it. So although he is um, generally considered the youngest of the disciples of Jesus, he still can't live forever. So that kind of puts the backdrop somewhere in maybe the 90s. Uh, But the other factor that influences when we place him writing this Uh, Letter is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened in the year 70 AD. Uh, When tensions erupt in Jerusalem and uh, into violence, the Roman army mercilessly mercilessly puts down the insurrection uh, and in the fighting destroys the beautiful temple that sat at the center of Jerusalem. Now, many scholars will put the writing of this gospel before that time Because John never directly mentions what would have been an earth-shattering moment in the life of any Jewish person. According to church tradition, uh, there, there's a crackdown on Christians that we read about in the Bible under Herod Agrippa uh, in, a, in the, like the 40 AD area. Jesus has died, resurrected, ascended to heaven. His believers are spreading the news of the gospel around Jerusalem. Herod, who's in charge of keeping the peace, doesn't like this. He cracks down on the Christians and they spread. Church tradition tells us that John actually leaves Jerusalem and goes and settles in a town called Ephesus with the church that's there. Ephesus we know because the apostle Paul writes a letter later that we have in our Bible called Ephesians to this church. Uh, So we believe that John is in this church in uh, Ephesus and he's writing this letter for a specific purpose. He says what the purpose is, that those who are reading it would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's what he's hoping for. Now, that feels obvious. It seems, well, of course, that's why he's writing it. But there's, there's a direct and mindful purpose here because John is making an argument from his place, from his perspective, from his concerns. And John is an Israelite. John's a Hebrew man who's grown up in the Jewish community of faith. And at this point, one of the main conversations that's going on, the main argument is one within the faith tradition. The Pharisees who control the synagogues in the area are kicking Jewish Christians out of the community and restricting their access to the synagogues. They're saying, you can't come here. And they're doing so because they believe that Christianity is a deceptive cult. And that it's not only leading faithful Jews astray, but that they are committing direct blasphemy because they are saying Jesus is God. To them, this is a massive deal. It's not just simply a disagreement about who we say Jesus is, but in the mind of the Pharisees, this is the kind of thing that will bring death upon those who make these kind of claims. And eventually, if it's left unchecked, will bring absolute judgment of God upon unfaithful Israel for not rooting it out. The Apostle Paul is a great example of what this kind of mindset looks like, right? He, as part of his story, he, he is part of this zealous pharisaical mindset, and he is doggedly pursuing the Christians that are in Israel uh, and that are growing in fantastic numbers, uh, not just because they're an aberration, but because he believes that death is what should come to blasphemers And he needs to be part of protecting God's reputation and Israel's standing as his reputation on earth. So to the people involved in this conversation, these are big stakes. These are big stakes. And John's trying to make a foundational argument in his gospel. His foundational argument is that the community of Jesus believers that has sprung up and is growing like crazy is not an aberration. It's not a cult that should be shunned from the historic Jewish faith but instead is a fulfillment of their entire history and their entire hope. Rather than something to be snuffed out to protect Israel's faith, this is the culmination of their long-winding history. So John is writing to convince that Jesus is God come to rescue his people, the Messiah they've waited for. Makes sense then, if that's the argument that he's making, that he begins his gospel the way he does the intro we've went through in the last few weeks, in which John is making a forceful argument about the place, the preeminence, and the role of Jesus from the very beginning. He says he is the wisdom, he is the creator, he is the light, he is God. And it's on that backdrop that we pick up the story as it transitions from introduction to action. We're going to Start reading in chapter one, verse nineteen. One one uh, side topic just to give you some information before we go on. The app that we have here at the church every week has sermon discussion questions that you can follow along as we go through the sermon. If that's helpful for you, you can find it in the app. If you don't have the app, you should get it. Otherwise, grab your Bible or your app on your phone and we'll go ahead and read. We're going to start in verse 19 and we're picking up an interaction between a man named John and a convoy of religious leaders that have traveled from Jerusalem about 15 miles out to the countryside to ask him a key question. What in the world is going on? Let's read. Now, this is John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back those, to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent to question him said, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. What we find here is the priests and the Levites, the religious authorities from the Jerusalem temple, are coming out to the wilderness to a place called Bethany on the other side of the Jordan River because here there's a large religious Movement that's been taking hold under the name, uh, under the guidance of a man named John. Now, to be clear, this is a different John than's writing the Gospel of John. Uh, this is a man known as John the Baptist. Other Gospels fill in a little bit of his backstory. Uh, we know that he is a cousin to Jesus. He's about six months older than Jesus is, uh, but we don't really have much uh, evidence that they've interacted with each other much other than while they were in the womb, their moms hung out for a while. We know that story. Uh, although it does seem that Jesus must have been spending some time with John and this movement that's going on because John is aware of him and has baptized him. Uh, many scholars believe that John, John the Baptist, was part of the Essene community in the first century of Israel. Now, we don't know a lot about the Essenes, but they are the third, uh, or they are the third of three major religious factions In Israel during Jesus' day. The other two we know a lot more about, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees would have been the religious conservatives that are in conflict with Jesus many times throughout the Gospels. Mainly because they tend to be influencing the working class, uh, average Israel's religious Life And that's where Jesus is hanging out. So he's having clashes with them. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are the religious and political elite of the day. These would be the people who are part of Israelite high society. They run the temple. They're the majority of the priestly class. They're the majority of the lawyers of Jesus' day. They would have been Bible lawyers, so arguing about what the law says and how to apply it. Jesus doesn't have much run-in with them uh, until the very end of his story as he moves from the countryside and the working class people in Israel towards the center of Israel's political and ruling class and when he clashes with the temple and temple leadership which then ultimately ends in a conspiracy to have Jesus killed. The Essenes on the other hand, they're pretty hardcore. We don't have much recorded about them, mainly because their entire structure of living puts them outside of the mainstream. These guys would be something uh, akin to monks living in a monastery-type life. They live under a vow of poverty. They live communally. Probably the most famous thing that we know them from is that they uh, recorded the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we discovered in like the 1960s. That was written down by the Essene community. Now, one of the primary clues that John was probably part of this community, other than the fact that he dresses very odd and doesn't seem to have much to his name, is the fact that he's practicing full immersion baptism. What does that mean? That means putting someone completely under the water. The kind of baptism that you'd see here at our church. Why is that such a big deal? Well, ritual washing was a big part of Israelite religious practice, but it was typically like washing of the hands, maybe washing of the head. This idea of full immersion would not have been part of the regular practice of Hebrew life. This is not something that you would do. Generally, it was only done to Gentiles, non-Hebrews, non-Israelites, who were converting to Judaism. You'd be fully immersed to show that you were being washed and reborn into this new life in God's world. And yet, there is one religious order that practiced full immersion baptism, the Essenes. In fact, they practiced full immersion baptism every day. They would be immersed in the water, showing their daily commitment to repentance and living before the face of God. So when you put all those clues together, we believe that John might actually have been an Essene. And what we also see here is that there's some expectations or assumptions that the religious envoy that's showing up has about who John is and what he's claiming. And they're doing it based on what he's up to out there. But they're also being made out of deep cultural and religious expectations of this moment of Israel's history. They have been under a long stream of political occupation, from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks, and now, in the current moment that we're reading about, they're under Roman rule. And they believed that because of that, God was going to move at some point in the very near future to free them from their captivity. They believed that there was a promise that God had made that he was going to send a rescuer, a hero, to either herald or usher in their release. The second assumption is that John must be claiming to be one of these expected characters because so many people had been making that claim over the past century or so. The credibility of a religious voice, the authority of a religious voice at this time in Israel's life was directly tied to the credibility that you could hang your hat on someone significant in, G- in Israel's history, and then you from there could say, and I'm a hope for the future. So when they show up to question John, it's no surprise that they've got a whole list of people they expect he must think that he's saying he is. The first one they ask about, the Messiah. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? This is the ultimate hope for Israel, That God was going to send them a champion, a hero, that was going to fulfill the line of their idealized king, David. That he was going to retake the throne, that he would overthrow the competing nations that surrounded them. The nations of the world would finally recognize Israel as the great power that it was destined to be. that, That Israel itself would be established as the dominant world power on the earth, and that this Messiah would reign for eternity and he would usher in this utopic world in which God reigned through Israel and had Jerusalem as as his throne. Now, for Israel, who had so long claimed to worship and be submitted to the one true God, the creator of all things, this longing underpinned so much of what they believed and hoped and what motivated them. You have to think about this. Their claim of their position in the cosmos and the entire universe was, was based on something that the average person looking at their history would say, these things don't match up. You say the most powerful and only God is your God and he's got a special place for you. And yet when I look at your actual history, you've been beat up and overthrown and overrun and constantly on the bottom of the ladder. How does that work? Well, they believed that when the Messiah showed up, he was gonna clear all that up, but John says, "Nope, I'm not him." The next thing they ask about is, "Well, then you must be Elijah." Elijah is one of the great prophets in Israel's history. Uh, the stories of his life and work are primarily found in the books of First and Second Kings. If you want to do more reading and research on Elijah, there's some great stories in there. Uh, he's probably best known for two of them. One of them, the uh, Paul led us through just a few weeks ago. It's the story of how Elijah finds himself in an Israel that has committed itself to other gods. And so therefore, in his role as prophet, he confronts those gods and he challenges them to this epic duel on the top of Mount Carmel where 400 priests of Baal and Elijah come to head and he calls down fire from heaven to prove that he is God's prophet. And then... Afterwards, in the defeat, has all 400 priests murdered. It's pretty gnarly. You should read it sometime. The second story uh, that he's best known for is actually what happened to him at the end of his life, where he's walking along the road, and a magical chariot of fire descends from the heavens, picks him up, and takes him in a tornado of smoke and flames off into heaven, and he's gone. He never actually dies. He's just whisked away. In Israel's history, Elijah holds a towering position next to Moses as one of the greatest leaders that they've had, one that would uh, lead his people to worship and freedom under their God, Yahweh. Now, Elijah's last appearance in our Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, is in the prophet Malachi. It would be the last book in your Old Testament where the prophet Malachi says this, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. This prophecy, alongside with Elijah like, disappearing in this cloud of smoke and fire, uh, led to this belief that when God was going to do what he was finally going to do, Elijah was going to show up and tell us about it, that he would tell us about the coming of the Messiah. But John says, no, I'm not Elijah either. The last one they ask about is what well, they say, the prophet. This isn't just a generic term, but it's a reference to one last expected figure. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, you got to go way back. This is Moses instructing the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And he says this to them. He says that God has spoken to me and he's going to raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Now, John denies this role as well. He says, nope, I'm not that prophet that Moses was talking about either. And now they're they're frustrated like, well, okay, well, why don't you just tell us who you are then? We're done, we've run out of things to guess. We got to bring back an answer to our bosses. They're going to be upset if we come back and say, we don't know who you are. What in the world is going on out here? And John responds to his questioners from the words of another well-known prophet. Isaiah, he says, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. This is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 40, in which the prophet tells of a future moment in which God will turn his kind face towards his people and fulfill his long ago made promise. Now, that seems like a direct answer But they're not satisfied with his response. They ask him, so why are you out here baptizing with water if you're not the Messiah and you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet? What are you doing? And John is doing everything he can to avoid being the star of this moment. He doesn't want to be the center of this attention. Instead, he's making it clear that he's playing just a bit part in a much larger uh, movement a much, much larger moment of which these religious leaders are completely unaware. He says that he's simply a herald of another one that's coming. We can pick up in verse 29. We'll, we'll read what he says the next day. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one that I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason that I came baptizing with water was so that he may be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man who you see the spirit come down on and remain on is the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. What a great introduction. I almost can't read it without being brought to tears. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here in this moment... The announcement of the Messiah is made in a bold public proclamation. John's movement is a large one. It's large enough and long lasting enough to have drawn the attention of the religious authorities from the city. And here, in the midst of this crowd, John fulfills his mission. The reason I came baptizing with water was so that he may be revealed to Israel. John's ministry and his entire life is shaped for this very moment, to testify and to proclaim the truth that Jesus is God's chosen one, the one who would take away the sin of the world. He is the one we've waited for, and what he brings will surpass every hope. John doesn't just make the claim with his words. He backs it up with testimony of what he personally witnessed when he baptized Jesus in this very River. The short account of what he recounts here is uh, rich with significant. The Spirit descends from heaven upon Jesus to fulfill what John had heard before he started this movement that the one he baptized, that the Spirit descends upon, is the one that is God's chosen one, the Messiah that the scriptures have so long pointed to. And his coming would bring with it the promise of remaking the entire current world order and to make it into something new altogether, a world in which God recreates everything that's been corrupted by sin, a world in which he gathers his people back into intimate relationship with himself, a world in which people are baptized into the Holy Spirit and remade, a world in which God's presence does not just dwell in a, spirit, in a temple or in a spiritual practice, but in a people. And the stunning promise of this moment right here is still echoing through history. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is still at work and still living in the new reality that has come because He has ushered it in. And the questions that we have to wrestle with because of the implication of this moment are multifaceted. I'm going to work us through three in the time that we have together today. The first question I want to wrestle with is how do we get included in this new reality that Jesus is bringing? The second one is this, what is our role in that new reality? And the third one, what do we do if we discover that we haven't been faithful to our role? It might seem like an overwhelming list of questions, but I think John the Baptist can actually lead us to our answer through all of these questions. The first one is how do we enter into this new reality that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has brought? John was teaching it through repentance, through turning from our sin our rebellion, our scoffing, our autonomy, our dismissiveness of God and neighbor. John's message in the desert as he's baptizing is the same message that we need to hear today. Turn from your sin, be washed clean by the God of mercy and grace who loves and is long-suffering and is patient and make way for the Lord. If you're here with us this morning or you're watching this online and you've never Acknowledge the reality of the world shaking, world shaping, world changing truth that God became man and has come to restore his creation. Then today is the day I want you to hear the call clearly. The chosen one of God has come to restore his creation. He is taking away the sin of the world, he is remaking all things and bringing together a people of joy under his kingship. He is kind and he is patient and he is filled with grace and filled with truth, and his name is Jesus. And you can be included in this new reality that he is making by believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that he is Lord. Repent and make way for the Lord. Secondly, the question that might apply to more of us today is, okay, so if I've done that, if I've made that confession about who Jesus is, what is our role in this reality that he's making? What are we to do? What place does the church hold in this project? I think we can find our lead once again from the baptizer. His entire life, his entire focus was on bringing to light in living and vivid color the proclamation that Jesus is the one we've waited for. He built his entire life structure and formed his entire mission for this one moment that's recorded for us. Right here, his life, his actions, what he valued, what he spoke about, what he did, what he was committed to, all for this moment. And when those in the community and those in power watched and wondered what he was up to and then asked him a direct question, what in the world is going on in here? He was ready with an answer. I'm pointing to him. I'm pointing to the reality of who he is and what he's come to do. And his proclamation carried with it extreme validation because his life and his actions were validators. He didn't claim anything or contradict, give words that contradicted what he was claiming. And because of that, he lent authenticity to his claim, something that could not easily be dismissed. In fact, John, the disciple of Jesus, is referring back to his words because they have authority and authenticity. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still referencing this moment because John's life validated his claims. And church, our role is to do the same. Our lives, our values, our concerns have to orbit around the most consequential truth ever revealed that Jesus is Lord. How we live, how we speak, how we interact, how we spend our money, how we vote, how we social media, how we treat those that we disagree with, how we raise our families, how we love our neighbors, all must be brought under the umbrella of being validators to the truth that Jesus is Lord. We cannot define And defend this comprehensive claim with any credibility if our lives don't validate our words. And when the church is a place and a people whose lives are marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in all areas of life, then when our community and our families and our neighbors and our coworkers and the people in power in our world inquire of us in our lives, then we can claim with real authentic authority that it's because Jesus is Lord and he has set us free. That leads us to the last question. What do we do if we discover that we haven't been faithful to that role? Because I'll be honest with you, even as I was preparing this sermon and I was writing about that last section I just gave to you, about the role of the church, my heart was in two parts. One part was leaping for joy at the call of the church. One part was yelling hallelujah and amen. One part was rejoicing, but I also have another part. And that part's deeply disturbed within me. Because even now, right right at this moment, that part of me is saying, You haven't been faithful. That That part of me says, You failed. You're hopeless. That half of me says, Do you even believe anything at all if you fall this short? We have to be honest about what that part of our heart is saying about what that part of my heart is claiming about me. It's claiming about you, claiming about us. Because it's not wrong. I've failed to live up to that role. You have failed to live up to that role. We have failed to live up to that role. That's the truth of what that part of my heart is saying to me. But that part of my heart is bringing with that truth a lie right behind it. It's a devastating lie that it wants me to believe right alongside it. It wants me to believe that Christ's work is dependent on me, on us to be successful. It wants me to believe that my failure defines me and is more real than the work that Jesus has accomplished. It wants me to believe that the way we hurt each other, cut each other down, devour each other, and fail to love our neighbors is a fatal flaw. I reject that lie, and you have to reject that lie too. Here's the truth— Christ is victorious. Jesus reigns above all creation. And in Christ alone, our hope is found. The way to a more faithful fulfillment of the role that we have been called to in the world is found through the same kindness, the same grace, and the same love that we were first showed. The ability to inhabit his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven is empowered through his baptism in the Holy Spirit. Church, there is a way back to faithfulness in the areas of our personal lives, our communal lives, our public lives, where we have not lived the reality that Jesus is Lord. It's the same path that brought us here to this life at the very beginning. It's a path of repentance and faith. Turn from the way that your heart has been hardened. Turn from the way that you've been harsh and judgmental and unloving. Turn back to the one who has showed you kindness and love. Make straight the way of the Lord and make his chosen one known to the nations. Let's pray that God would empower us. God, we confess that we want to follow John the Baptist's lead. We want to be a people who has shaped our very lives around the proclamation of the truth that Jesus is Lord. God, we want our lives to be validators of our claims. God, we also confess we have often failed terribly at that. God, we proclaim what we know is true. You are kind, you are long-suffering, you are patient You are gracious. You are full of truth and love. God, we pray that you would move in us, that you would empower us through the Holy Spirit to be the kind of people that apart from you we cannot be. And that as you make us into those people, we would use those opportunities to point to Jesus as our King. God, you are good, you are faithful. Make us who you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.